Chapter 19 of The Practice and Science of Drawing This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bo Wood The Practice and Science of Drawing by Harold Speed Chapter 19 Procedure in commencing a drawing, don't, as so many students do, start carelessly floundering about with your chalk or charcoal in the hope that something will turn up. It is seldom, if ever, that an artist puts on paper anything better than he has in his mind before he starts. And usually, it is not nearly so good. Don't spoil the beauty of a clean sheet of paper by a lot of scribble. Try and see in your mind's eye the drawing you mean to do, and then try and make your hand realize it, making the paper more beautiful by every touch you give, instead of spoiling it by a slovenly manner of procedure. To know what you want to do and then to do it is the secret of good style and technique. This sounds very commonplace, but it is surprising how few students make it their aim. You may often observe them come in, pin a piece of paper on their board, draw a line down the middle, make a few measurements, and start blocking in the drawing without having given the subject to be drawn a thought as if it were all there done before them and only needed copying, as a clerk would copy a letter already drafted for him. Now, nothing is being said against the practice of drawing guidelines and taking measurements and blocking in your work. This is very necessary in academic work, if rather fettering to expressive drawing. But even in the most academic drawing, the artistic intelligence must be used, although that is not the kind of drawing this chapter is particularly referring to. Look well at the model first. Try and be moved by something in the form that you feel is fine or interesting, and try and see in your mind's eye what sort of drawing you mean to do before touching your paper. In school studies, be always unflinchingly honest to the impression the model gives you, but dismiss the camera idea of truth from your mind. Instead of converting yourself into a mechanical instrument for the copying of what is before you, let your drawing be an expression of truth perceived intelligently. Be extremely careful about the first few strokes you put on your paper. The quality of your drawing is often decided in these early stages. If they are vital and expressive, you have started along lines you can develop and have some hope of doing a good drawing. If they are feeble and poor, the chances are greatly against your getting anything good built upon them. If your start has been bad, pull yourself together, turn your paper over, and start afresh. 
trying to seize upon the big, significant lines and swings in your subject at once. Remember, it is much easier to put down a statement correctly than to correct a wrong one. So out with the whole part if you are convinced it is wrong. Train yourself to make direct, accurate statements in your drawings. And don't waste time trying to maneuver a bad drawing into a good one. Stop as soon as you feel you have gone wrong and correct the work in its early stages instead of rushing on upon a wrong foundation in the vague hope that it will all come right in the end. When out walking, if you find you have taken a wrong road, you do not, if you are wise, go on in the hope that the wrong way will lead to the right one. But you turn round and go back to the point at which you left the right road. It is very much the same in drawing and painting. As soon as you become aware that you have got upon the wrong track, stop and rub out your work until an earlier stage that was right is reached and start along again from this point. As your eye gets trained, you will more quickly perceive when you have done a wrong stroke and be able to correct it before having gone very far along the wrong road. Do not work too long without giving your eye a little rest. A few moments will be quite sufficient. If things won't come, stop a minute. The eye often gets fatigued very quickly and refuses to see truly, but soon revives if rested a minute or two. Do not go laboring at a drawing when your mind is not working. You are not doing any good and probably are spoiling any good you have already done. Pull yourself together and ask what it is you are trying to express. And having got this idea firmly fixed in your mind, go for your drawing with the determination that it shall express it. All this will sound very trite to students of any metal, but there are large numbers who waste no end of time working in a purely mechanical, lifeless way, and with their minds anywhere but concentrated upon the work before them. And if the mind is not working, the work of the hand will be of no account. My own experience is that one has constantly to be making fresh effort during the procedure of the work. The mind is apt to tire and needs rousing continually. Otherwise, the work will lack the impulse that shall make it vital. Particularly is this so in the final stages of a drawing or painting when, in adding details and small refinements, it is doubly necessary for the mind to be on fire with the initial impulse, or the main qualities will be obscured and the result enfeebled by these smaller matters. Do not rub out, if you can possibly help it, in drawings that aim at artistic expression. In academic work where artistic feeling is less important than the discipline of your faculties, you may, of course, do so, but even here, as little as possible. 
In beautiful drawing of any facility, it has a weakening effect, somewhat similar to that produced by a person stopping in the middle of a witty or brilliant remark to correct a word. If a wrong line is made, it is left in by the side of the right one in the drawing of many of the masters. But the great aim of the draughtsman should be to train himself to draw cleanly and fearlessly, hand and eye going together. But this state of things cannot be expected for some time. Let painstaking accuracy be your aim for a long time. When your eye and hand have acquired the power of seeing and expressing on paper, with some degree of accuracy, what you see, you will find facility and quickness of execution will come of their own accord. In drawing of any expressive power, this quickness and facility of execution are absolutely essential. The waves of emotion, under the influence of which the eye really sees in any artistic sense, do not last long enough to allow of a slow, painstaking manner of execution. There must be no hitch in the machinery of expression when the consciousness is alive to the realization of something fine. Fluency of hand and accuracy of eye are the things your academic studies should have taught you, and these powers will be needed if you are to catch the expression of any of the finer things in form that constitute good drawing. Try and express yourself in as simple, not as complicated, a manner as possible. Let every touch mean something. And if you don't see what to do next, don't fill in the time by meaningless shading and scribbling until you do. Wait a while. Rest your eye by looking away and then see if you cannot find something right that needs doing. Before beginning a drawing, it is not a bad idea to study carefully the work of some master draughtsman, whom the subject to be drawn may suggest. If you do this carefully and thoughtfully, and take in a full enjoyment, your eye will unconsciously be led to see in nature some of the qualities of the master's work, and you will see the subject to be drawn as a much finer thing than would have been the case had you come to it with your eye unprepared in any way. Reproductions are now so good and cheap that the best drawings in the world can be had for a few pence, and every student should begin collecting reproductions of the things that interest him. This is not the place to discuss questions of health, but perhaps it will not be thought grandmotherly to mention the extreme importance of nervous vitality in a fine draughtsman and how his life should be ordered on such healthy lines that he has at his command the maximum instead of the minimum of this faculty. After a certain point, it is a question of vitality how far an artist is likely to go in art. Given two men of equal ability, the one leading a careless life and the other a healthy one, as far as a healthy one is possible, 
to such a supersensitive creature as an artist, there can be no doubt as to the result. It is because there is still a lingering idea in the minds of many that an artist must lead a dissipated life, or he is not really an artist, that one feels it necessary to mention the subject. This idea has evidently arisen from the inability of the average person to associate an unconventional mode of life with anything but riotous dissipation. A conventional life is not the only wholesome form of existence and is certainly a most unwholesome and deadening form to the artist. And neither is a dissipated life the only unconventional one open to him. It is as well that the young student should know this and be led early to take great care of that most valuable of studio properties, vigorous health. End of chapter 19. Recording by Bo Wood.